Hello! What you're about to listen to is something we've put together exclusively for our Patreon subscribers, the patrons of everything. A mini-sode where Sam and I go through extra material we couldn't cover in the full episode, and you get to be a fly on the wall of our research process and real-life conversations. We hope you enjoy a sneak peek to the benefits of becoming a patron of everything. Now to the mini-sode, covering a bit extra on the wonderful episode, Music. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Music and Everything mini-sode. The music in little things, the music in one thing. We haven't really figured out what we're going to call this, but it the is- The music in some stuff. So it's it's a mini-sode where we're going to dive a little deeper into some of the topics we've already covered in the main podcast, because we do a lot of research. We don't always get to cover everything, and we do have some really interesting stuff that we'd like to share with you guys. So that's what this is for. It's me, Sam. And I'm here with Sam Gray. It's just the two of us. I thought you weren't Jim. Yeah, I know. I know. I look very similar to Jim, <laughs> me being related to him and everything. Um, and we're just going to run through some extra stuff that we thought was really interesting. So today we are exploring in a bit more detail the topic of music. And I don't know if you guys remember from that episode, but Sam had a lot of really interesting music theory stuff, but we could not possibly fit it all in there. So... That's what we're going to cover today. So we're just going to suffer through a little bit more of that together. Um, yeah, so this is a bit of an experimental uh, format as well. Um, you, like the, the the shocking absence of of one person in this room um, is is striking. Um, but let's let's see if we can. Let's yeah, see we're looking we have... right at each other, <laughs> uh, which is very interesting. Also, I don't know, I know you could probably tell, but yes, we are sitting in opposite sides. Like we swap chairs. Uh, so <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you, from looking at us, I'm, I'm sure, sure you could tell immediately <laughs> yeah. that we're in different positions. Yeah, so like, please don't stress out. We're just trying a different a different arrangement. Um, it'll be fine. What do you want to know more about from our conversation about music? Music. So you brought up a lot of insane things. Um, <laughs> and honestly, I think Jim and I were both kind of reeling from it but you did mention sort of when you're talking about the harmonic series and things like that that these concepts of like stretch tuning and uh like harmonic tuning or whatever it was and we didn't get to go into that in a bit more detail and I feel like that would be something really interesting to explore yeah so so in case you're kind of foggy about what what the hell we're talking about from that episode because we went through a lot um but the overtone series or the harmonic series is basically this thing where um, any pitch sound will produce actually a lot of different pitches um, in higher than that original pitch. And we all hear that as kind of one sound and that's kind of what creates a sort of a timbre, like somebody, the sound of somebody's voice or the sound of what a trumpet sounds like. Um, so, but they always follow these sort of ratios, these specific frequencies. Why can't I say specific? Specific, <laughs> Pacific Frequencies. I don't think specific is a word that a lot of people can say, so I wouldn't feel bad about that. I don't think I'm that. alone in that No, one. I think you, you're um, shared. Yeah, so there's this specific scale, basically, the scale of notes. Um, and what we talked about on the podcast was the fact that, you know, those actually conform to all these different scales um, across the world, um, especially the ones that are most used, like, you know, the sort of Western major scale and also several pentatonic scales, which are common across a lot of parts of the world. So that was really cool. What we didn't get to talk about was how much that affected how music is sort of played. Yes, which yeah. I think would be really interesting because as we discussed, there's obviously various different kinds of, of music and we, we got to experience like the gamelan and we got to experience sort of 
folk musics of various kinds, and obviously we are um, aware of like pop music and like mm. Western music. How and like they do sound very different, but they're not using different notes. They're not. It's not like the harmonic series stops functioning when you go and play Indian music. So it, that must have an impact. The kinds yeah. of scales that you use and the instruments that you're using would, ha- would have, have an impact. Well, yeah. So like you know, I you might remember me saying that um, when you play the harmonic series of notes based off that one original note, um, it starts to get kind of what our ear says is out of tune. Um, And a lot of that is because it doesn't conform to Western note scales, essentially. So there's there's lots of notes that are sitting in between two notes that we would have like on a piano. Um, And your ear can kind of hear that difference between the intervals. So you're talking about microtones and stuff like that? Yeah, like, well, see, the thing is, is microtones is a term that you used in Western music theory to describe stuff between the notes on a piano. Yeah. But that's just notes in different musical cultures. Right, okay, um, yeah. So in, that's a, that's in, a good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just like, what's your privilege there, <laughs> uh, But yeah, like the, in Indian classical music, there's, you know, 22 note scales and stuff. So those notes in between notes on the piano, the Western piano, they're just another note. So, you know, and, but that's an important thing to keep in mind. So thinking about that harmonic series, some of those notes are quote unquote out of tune. Um, so that, yes, Samantha? Samantha has a hand up. <laughs> I just feel like it's the most efficient way. I just have a question. When you say the word out, when you say the phrase out of tune, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Well, I just mean that it, it's, we call it, without, we would call it out of tune because it sounds out of tune to our ears. Is there like, is it a dissonance thing? Is it more that just our ears don't like? Well, the thing the is remembering gap? that our ears can hear intervals. Like, so for example, really universal intervals, like a perfect fifth, like dun, 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 dun. Like, uh, no, just the first bit, dun, dun. <laughs> Um, perfect fifth is, is a, is a really even ratio and it's really good for our ears to hear. Right. Okay. Was that the question you asked? No, but I, I, yeah. So (laughs) I suppose my question is the fact that the notes to our ears feel closer together, for instance, rather than a perfect fifth, it's a little closer or perhaps a little further away. Is that the thing that makes it feel like it's out of tune because it's not kind of fitting with these these sort of structures, because there's there's a cultural element to the way that we approach like things like scales, I feel. Yeah. Because if you're raised in like a Western music tradition where you've got the eight note scale versus like the um, sort of Indian classical kind of raga scales, for mm. instance, yeah. um, you're going to hear out of tune differently. Yeah. No, exactly. But the, okay, so, but there's also a... Um, uh, like a physical reason as to why you would hear it. So like when you're tuning two notes and you're tuning a fifth, the the waves actually interfere with each other if they're not that ratio. <laughs> so it's called interference beating. Um, and the, the waves sort of beat against each other. So hmm, this is probably easier if you've ever tried to tune a guitar before. I have. And, yeah, yeah, okay, you've tried yeah, to tune yeah. a guitar. And you imagine tuning like the bottom two strings. Yep. And it's a perfect, um, that's um, a fourth. So you're trying to you're hearing that interval, which is a nice clean interval, and if it's off, you have this sort of warbling sound, almost like they're vibrating in in your brain. Um, and then you, as you tune the, the peg sharp or flat, like up or down, um, it starts to become sounding in unison, the same note. Right. And those are actually the harmonics of the two notes coming into alignment. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I'm just sort of like because you don't think about the fact that sound is a wave when you think about it. And so the idea that it's just simply two waves in, I, I'm, I'm picturing this like a great classical Greek battle where they're like fighting each other and it creates this sort of like 
discordant. <laughs> that's what I'm picturing in my head. Um, if I could picture things in my head, which I can't, but that's what I would be picturing in my mm. head. Um, okay, so here's where it gets um, here's where it gets nightmarish. Oh, good. Okay. Um, here's where it gets. <laughs> Messed up. I was like, oh, okay, this is, yeah, this is absolutely, totally, understandably uh, clear. It is. So, okay, you know, I described those those uh, those kind of harmonic intervals being ratios. So they're what we call like a pure interval. Um, you cannot arrange 12 notes as we do in Western music and as we do in like Chinese music, um, 12 notes um, and have them all be pure intervals, <laughs> as in all in tune with the harmonic series. Because, because when you strike a note and you hear the harmonics above, that's its own world of those frequencies. It would be a different one than the, the next note up because it's a pitch above. So when you're combining the notes together, um, they're not going to be in keeping necessarily with the original note. What? Like, <laughs> so, so the so harmonics of the original note may not be the same as... The actual note. So let's say in the harmonic series, there's a minor seventh, you know, which is one one tone below the octave. Yeah. And that one may not be the same as the one in the harmonic series in the lower note. So this is why. So why? <laughs> you're saying why? It's because the world is broken. Oh, um, okay. okay. Wow. Well, <laughs> because great. yes, in some respects, humans are like, wow, music is inherent in nature, and we're expressing it. And in other ways, we're going like, we're making some crazy maths out of stuff that doesn't quite fit. Um, those the physics of sound waves doesn't quite fit it. Okay, so then my question is, why do we have such a draw to sort of is the word is it the opposite of discordant would be consonant? Con like this sort of like <laughs> these these nice sonorous. Yeah, like why why are we drawn if that's not like in nature? Why are we drawn to creating scales that are these sorts of really nice, like well-spaced sort of notes. It's kind of fascinating to me as well as like, because um, obviously, you know, like what dissonance is, we talked about this on, on the episode, what yeah. dissonance is, is different from culture to culture. Yeah. Like that Indonesian gamelan music to a lot of Western ears is like frighteningly it's like dissonant. like boss music. Something. Yeah, it's so stressful. So that's, but there's studies that show like babies as young as like two months can tell the difference between a dissonant note, like a harsh semitone being played together. And like something that's prettier sounding. Oh wow! Yeah. Wait, how and old? The, like two months. Oh, that's new. That's yeah. A new they're baby. still like a milk sack at this point, <laughs> and they'd be like, "Oh, that note sucks." Like, yeah. Um. Again, like could still be a cultural thing that easily could still be just like very very quick, uh, learning because babies yeah. are crazy. Kind of cool similar like to how babies learn language through hearing the sounds of the way that we speak, yes. and that, as we know from the episode, the way that we speak is very much in accordance to the harmonic series and the way that we sing and the way that music is played because our voice, I think I'm remembering this right, our voice also behaves like a, like the harmonic series. Yeah, we're speak. making pitch noises. Yeah. And in fact, when we shift our vowels, we're using harmonics to create the oh, to yes. create vowels. Yeah, so it would make sense that like the same mechanisms that allow a baby to slowly understand speech would mm. also allow them to understand music. Yeah, those notes, dun, 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 dun. Those, like, if somebody throat sings, does some, like, Mongolian throat singing or something, those are the notes that you're going to hear. Yeah. It's just absolutely wild. Yeah. Um, so, tuning systems, right? Okay, so, yes. as I said, you can't do this right. So, and this creates problems because 
if you're using all pure intervals or trying to, the different intervals at different octaves are going to be different. In different keys, they're going to be different. So this created a huge problem. So basically, there's a, there's a, what they used to do in Western music was a, a system called just intonation. Um, and it's called just intonation. <laughs> it's just. <laughs> it's called just intonation because um, it has it's just pure intervals. Right. It's the, just the use of that word in, I don't know, the 1700s. Um, but they they use ratios and specific ratios, not always ones to do with the harmonic series, but ones to try and make it work, essentially. Um, make it work with the maths of the situation. So they're doing. Um, are they doing maths to figure this out or are they just vibe checking it? N- that's an actually a very interesting question because they clearly have been using maths. And by they, I mean like everybody because adjust intonation is still, that's, that's how the Indian classical music uh, works. It uses this sort of system mm. um, rather than like uh, the equal temperament system. Which on that note, I do want you to tell me about Indian classical music. I'll get there. Okay. Um, okay, so there are several problems with just intonation. Again, because it's based off these ratios, changing keys is actually impossible. So an instrument is tuned to one key because if you try to change what key you're playing in, like you've been playing in G major, now you're going to play in B minor, um, the intervals, like say your B to D or minor third, might be actually really gross because they were intended for, to fit in another key's harmonic structure. <laughs> that's the best noise to have in relation to this. Okay, that's problem number one. Um, problem number two with using a system like this is that um, the octaves over time um, become uh, what? The, hmm. It's called the syntonic comma. Um, it's it's where it's slightly less than an octave. In fact, it's the ratio eighty-one over eighty. That would be slightly more. Anyway. <laughs> Oh, no, no, it would be slightly less. The second note is the 80. 81 to 80. Okay. Okay, yeah, it's the syntomic comma, uh, which was first theorized by Didymus the musician, um, who was a real person who was really called that <laughs> in, in Rome in the first century BCE. Oh, I was going to ask you, is this guy ancient? Because nobody goes by <laughs> the musician. It's like, that's not something that we do these days. Well, this guy was Bruce Smart, so... Um, anyway, so figuring out this problem, essentially. Um, and this is where Pythagorean tuning comes in. Um, oh, hell yeah, my bae Pythagoras. So then you create a scale. So like to get to get your head around how just like mathematically fucked this is, this is the like uh, Western chromatic scale, um, all 12 notes of the piano um, in ratios. Okay, you ready? Okay. One to one, 256 to 243. 9 to 8, 32 to 27, 81 to 64, 4 to 3, 729, 512, 3 to 2, 128 to 81, 27 to 16, 16 to 9, 243 to 128, and 2 to 1. That's ridiculous. But also, like, so what is that ratio? Is that ratio representing, like, the, the harmonic difference between the f- the second note to the first note is that what that's is that what that uh, fraction is representing? So it's like the the first note is this far. I don't. Un- the problem is like okay, so I'm gonna miss something. The problem is I don't understand how fractions work. <laughs> yeah, this is, a, this is the problem. Um, and I have a math minor. <laughs> oh dear. So um, no, it it is in proportion to the original note because otherwise the an octave wouldn't be two to one. 
Because oh. an octave is always a double because it's the same note but just double the frequency. Oh, 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 oh okay. That wasn't an octave. Okay, so if we put it, in, if we put it into <laughs> decimal, yeah, Samantha. If we put it into des- decimals, would that help? I don't know. You know what? I'm just gonna act as though I know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, that sounds that's fascinating. Okay, Seth. and so okay, because you know how I said those intervals would be different in a certain key, and some of them are gonna sound gross in certain keys. Yes. So those are actually notated often in this time period. We're kind of talking Renaissance into kind of early modern period here, like sort of 1500s to 1700s in Europe, um, when they're using this system. Um, and those. So this intervals, is how they're writing out, like. Scales, or is this how they're writing? Well, they have to. Okay, if they have an interval in a scale that sounds weird or gross, and is difficult for some reason, a composer is going to write around that limitation. Mm. So just the same way you write around the limitation of a French horn, uh, which of which there are many. Um, sorry, French horn. Uh, you're great. Um, also, way to say that while I have coffee in my mouth. Jesus, <laughs> nearly killed me. They're called um, wolf intervals, um, which is sick. Yeah. Um, like, but, so like, is for it like example, a double F or is it like wolf the animal? I need to know. Wolf the animal. Oh, boring. Um, so like, for example, it's, if it's a wolf fifth or something, it's actually so, the fifth is so sharp. It's so much higher than what you would expect a fifth to be that it's almost a minus sixth and you create a crazy interference beating so it hurts your brain and it was seen as kind of evil in like other wolf the wolf note or whatever. Oh, because wolves are evil. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> okay, so of course. Yes, okay, I'm, I'm in the time period now. Yes, that makes the sense. The reason why they, like Western musicians moved away from these systems is actually really interesting because um, the most common problems to happen with those scales, those crazy notes that didn't work quite right, were with thirds. So major thirds like... Um, that's a major third so the thing is is in this era of writing music thirds were actually considered dissonant we consider them to be very pretty and nice now and we put them in everything but in there they kind of avoided them in their composition they liked fourths and fifths and octaves and sixths and stuff they liked they liked other stuff that's really interesting yeah, like yeah. the difference the the way that yeah the way the dissonance and is it assonance no like for example like you know you're Assonance? No, no, no. Assonance is in, in poetry with the, the um, vowels that uh, go Yes, together. no, we've had yeah. this conversation before. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, what I was saying, Samantha. Oh, yes. You were saying something <laughs> about uh, they did they thought thirds were yeah, dissonant. So, dissonant. So they kind of avoided them. So it wasn't really much of a problem. Or did they avoid them because of these tuning problems? Anyway. We will never know. The greatest mystery of all time. You're hitting the 1700s and music is changing in Western classical music. They want big orchestras. Um, and also they, they desperately just want to change keys, you guys. They want, <laughs> they want to modulate. They want to do all this cool harmonic shit that we associate with like Mozart and post-Mozart stuff. Yeah, they want to do a Michael Jackson, end of uh, Man in the Mirror modulation. All and I get, I get it. I get it. Yeah, um, we can't. We can't we have can't, that. Like, <laughs> so much, so many copyrights against that, Sam. Please. <laughs> um, yeah, so they couldn't do that with just intonation systems and Pythagorean tuning and stuff. It was just impossible. Um, so they. So we had to sacrifice justice for music. This is how you get to the modern Western tuning system, which of course is um, not just Western now because it's you know everywhere in the world, especially in pop music, because that uses it as well. Which is equal temperament tuning. Yeah, you mentioned this. Yes, I did. Now, I'm not sure I meant what I mentioned is who made it. No, I don't think you okay, did. Okay, so it was 
way earlier than you would expect. Um, it That's was, usually the way it goes with these things. Yeah, and it was also in China. Oh, um, oh. yeah, yeah. Um, which not is, so Western after all. Yeah, well, does China theoretically uses the uh, twelve-note chromatic scale as a base unit of theory. So, um, there's a guy named um, Zhu Zayu, and in 1584, oh, who first divided a, uh, an octave uh, into twelve equal notes. So just to be clear here, like, so this just intonation thing is like you've got a bass note and then you're using ratios like the maths to determine which Yeah, so you have like a third, scale. a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, yeah. a seventh, yeah. and, but an those, and those notes are not equal to each other. They're not equal in distance. But in equal temperament tuning, as so named, they are literally divided by 12 into tw 12 bits, divided right. into 100 cents <laughs> for each uh, semitone. Right. Um, so... And it was it's kind of funny, actually, because it was developed also by the same time in Europe by a guy named Simon Stephen. Oh, that is not a real name. <laughs> and I that thought is the so most too. generic I man you've so ever too. met. <laughs> but he exists. He was a Flemish mathematician. Well, that's kind of cool. Um, just a quick aside. Yes. Um, so the sort of major minor system that we have, you were saying that, like, they can't, like, shift uh, keys, right? Is that this like major to major? So going from a C major to a G major, is that the same problem? Um, because I'm I not always... sure, but I would expect so because that's to, the difference is mostly in the third. Uh, so, right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because I because from my rudimentary mm. musical theory knowledge is that like obviously like the minor the se the seventh note is flatter or yes. something like it's that. It's a minor seventh. It's a minor seventh. And seven. the sixth note is flatter as well. It's it, a minor yes. Sixth. Um, and so I was like, maybe that's the issue, but I mean, cause they had major and minor scales at this time period. Right? Yes. Okay, good. Cool. I just uh, wanted yeah. To yeah. So equal temperament is really interesting like that. So, and you might think, oh, they, why did it take so long to just divide it by 12? But it's just like, it actually takes a fair amount of maths to divide something by 12, yeah, 12 which I didn't realize until I looked into this. I mean, and if anyone remembers the fucking numbers episode, like 12 is not an easy number and we can blame the Sumerians, I think, or is it the Egyptians? One of those two, we can blame for it. But like, that's like that's not the same thing as like dividing by two. Yeah. So the way Jew did it was um, he like divided string or pipe or something, and he had to do it in using square roots. Oh um, my like god! Square roots of twelve. No, I would have just given <laughs> up. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Um, so yeah, it actually takes a lot of effort to create that um, idea, and. So now we've got this so equal temperament returning to where we started. Um, that's not in tune at all with harmonic series, but um, it's in tune with itself. A third at one octave or in one key is going to be the same no matter which way you play it on the piano. Um, and that's really critical when you're playing with an orchestra of people. Yes, um, because you mentioned that you had to have an instrument tuned to a particular scale, right? So we're talking like at this time pre-orchestral would that that would be just what like a guitar or would, mm. were there guitars? I'm assuming there were string instruments. Oh yeah, so, I mean like a picture like a, an early piano is like harpsichords. And, oh yes, of course. Yeah. And so then when you have this transition where you're still using just just tuning before you get to equal equal temperament, and you're were there orchestral arrangements in just tuning? Do you think or was I don't know enough these, to know that? Yeah, because I know the composers like there's still people who've theorized just intonation and music theory in like the 20th and 21st centuries. But they still write in this yep. way. Oh wow, okay. Yeah, Wendy Carlos released um, records using making synths play in just intonation. Oh, for um, 
Was that for? I'm not sure if it was for Switched On Bark. Yeah. But it was for later stuff, I'd Yeah, because that's sick. Yeah. I love that so much. Yeah. So like, oh, and obviously Bark was in Just Intonation by the era that that was in. Right. Um, yeah. Because I just, you just sort of wonder then like, what's the value of having, was ev- like, you would just never write music outside of one that one key then. Yeah, well, well, I mean, you would be kind of limited, but it's just like musicians are limited by stuff all the time. <laughs> like playing the French horn, for instance. Um, yeah, it's just like um, certain tonalities, if you want to have open strings playing on a guitar in a chord, which I did nonstop when I played guitar, um, you're limited to what key you're playing in because by the instrument. And, you know, like composers and musicians just work around limitations. Just the same way they have to think think about like the different instruments in an orchestra. and How they fit together. And how yeah. they fit together. And that is really something that's very interesting, having played in an orchestra, like a full with strings and everything. It's a really strange experience to sort of be there and hear the fact that there are all of these very, very different tones being played. You've got the sort of like beautiful strings and the vibration yeah. of strings and you've got the sort of, uh, you know, percussive instruments and you've got all of the different like squeaks and honks and fart noises of all the brass and whatever instruments and how they come together in this beautiful sort of total sound is pretty yeah. amazing, especially when you're in it and all you're fucking hearing is euphoniums behind you <laughs> and <laughs> hoping to God that it all sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was also doing that to the flutes in front of me with my trombone, but, uh, you know. You know, I remember hearing that like brass sections, like trumpeters who sit in front are in, are in and trombones as well. Like you said, like they're kind of at risk with hearing because you have to wear earplugs and stuff because you've literally got a stack of brass behind you. Yeah. Triple F, like. like. Yeah. And when I've played flute in the past and I've um, been sitting in front of the brass section, I've really gone, oh my God, I've, I've been a terror this entire time. <laughs> like I've just been a monster behind these poor little flautists with their tiny instruments that they're trying to make noise through, which is very difficult. All right, so there's one thing I want to say about this intonation and tuning stuff before I leave you. <laughs> You're not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm in your house. Um, okay, so you, when we sing in a choir... Yes. Um, Something we've both We done. are not singing in equal temperament. No. Because our ears are tuned towards the magic of nature and we sing in a just intonation system. Barbershop quartets, when they're singing together, that's not in equal temperament. Why do I feel like you've been waiting until this day to tell me this? We've How have, we, how have you never told me this before? <sighs> I don't know, because it's awesome. <laughs> like, I just love thinking about it. As well as that too, like a cello player, because like any unfretted instrument, so like a stringed instrument, like a cello, cello or a violin that doesn't have frets, like a guitar, you can slide between the notes. You can play, or mm. a fretless bass, you know. Mm. You can play between the notes. And you so you get this um, lovely sort of... Um, control over whatever you want to do. And naturally, if you're playing by yourself, they generally play <laughs> closer to just intonation, which absolutely blows my mind that people singing in a choir, but it makes sense. So if you're singing in a choir, you're listening out when you're like voice matching and stuff and you're listening to the person next to you and the, and the sopranos over there and you're trying to make sure that they're, um, you're in tune together. Mm. And the way we tune in our heads is listening to the harmonics, listening to the interference beating that's happening between the wonderful harmonic wonder yeah. that's happening from that our is, voices. So like that's that's why we sing in that intonation because we're literally singing in tune with physics. With nature. <laughs> no, and I mean, and it is really beautiful when you get to have like the bass, tenor, treble, alto, sopranos, mezzo-sopranos, all of the things together and they're actually like singing as a group. It is, it really does sound quite beautiful. Um, and that just makes me wonder, 
because you don't often get like choirs and orchestras singing together all that often, but organ as an instrument, mm. how how the fuck is that interacting with the harmonic series? Because I have no idea how organs are Oh tuned. my God, because I just <laughs> realized that because I'm like the organ is like, it's like four different pianos and they've got all the pipes and all the stops and I don't know how it works. Well, the thing about organs though is that like when someone hits a fucking pipe organ, all stops. The instrument is not just the little <laughs> like fluty things that are sticking out from the thing. Like the the whole room, the like the cathedral that it's in, yes, yeah, is producing it's built the into yeah it. because of the reflections of the sound. It's there's so much harmonic material oh happening God, from the even, reflections. I never even thought about the the function of reverberation. Well, yeah, most of the sound we hear is actually reverberation. Oh, damn! <laughs> no, no. So if you ever go into an anechoic chamber which is not recommended because it makes you kind of insane. Um, but that an anechoic chamber is a chamber that has no reflective quality at all. No echo from the walls, from anything. It just absorbs all sound. It's the one where if you're in there for so long, you start hearing your own yes. blood pumping. No, more than your blood. You start to hear like your nerves. Oh, no. And people, you actually go crazy. Like I, I remember someone saying to me like, oh, I'd lasted about an amazing 35 minutes and then begged to get out of there. Um, but, you know, like if you just play a trumpet or something in there, it's almost silent. It's like a like this, this, <laughs> the sound that we hear from anything is to do with reverberation. Is it like the beep tone of like when you're testing a speaker? <laughs> That's all you hear. <laughs> I, I don't actually know the exact sound a trumpet would make in an anechoic chamber, but I'd like to find out. Yeah. If I, you have an anechoic chamber. <laughs> <laughs> let us, hit us up. Um, so one more thing I wanted to sort of quiz you about before I let you go for this evening and you make dinner. Um <laughs> <laughs> is um you we've been talking a lot about how like we've been using different cultural music to explain kind of the different ways that harmonic series is used and the different ways that kind of music serves a function and one of the things that we didn't really get to talk about that much was the Indian raga and I think yeah. because it's one of those sort of musical traditions that has the 22 note scale and it's or is it more than that is it a 22 note yeah, scale it's 22, yeah. and so that's like that's such an interesting example of the way that those kind of microtones, as we call them, or those sort of like um, those different kind of structures of engaging with a harmonic series can result in these really beautiful um, mu musics yeah. across sort of like, especially South South Asia in particular, but India has a very strong uh, culture with that. So, yeah, so what is... Like I said, we were talking about like that transition to equal temperament tuning and that happened because in Europe they had all of this harmony happening where they had lots of instruments playing lots and lots of different notes to make up lots of different chords and they wanted those to change in complex and interesting ways because that's a very Western music thing to do. Um, in Indian classical music, that's not how their music works. Their music is, is dumbly based off, off a dr like there's a drones and there's um, a lot of improvisation as well, which is very different to Western music. Um, classical and now <laughs> and uh you know like a instruments like a sitar which is playing um one note at a time yes so this is this is a very different use of scales so instead of making chords as a rule um it's using different notes in a scale with amazing complexity and flexibility like da, da, like big slides yeah because we, we watched a, a reel of somebody practicing singing uh, yeah, um, Music Riaz um, yeah. on Instagram. Yeah. It practices a whole bunch of vocal exercises in Indian classical music, and it's really cool. If you, I would look him up. Because it's very shape-focused. Yeah, so he's, he sort of draws it out on a piece of paper, 
and like with a with lines in between, and it's sort of a particular kind of squiggle to mean a kind of um, vibrato or shifting between the notes, um, and then a big loop to mean like it's a slide down, and um, and the notes themselves are represented by symbol, and that's because in in, in classical um, the names of the notes um, there's there's one name for a note in a in a scale, um, so it's it's sa re ga ma pa dani, um, and the reason why. Um, so like um, do yes yeah uh, yeah solfa yeah solfa do re mi fa sol la ti do in like in Western self self yeah we got the eight yeah so it's it's similar to that right um, in the fact that you can flex flex to whatever notes you're playing um, frequencies you're playing yes but those are the what you would name the notes and so you can notate what you're writing and what the scale is made up of um, using those without having to worry about the key um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so wow. Like, that's just really, like that's sulfur. actually that's actually really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I, it I, makes I, sense because this whole this whole kind of music is improvising along um, sets of patterns, and that's where the raga comes in. So the raga is not um, ragas are sort of like sort of like scales in Western music in a way. Like you can notate a raga and say on its bass level, you can say, oh, here's a, and it's like this sort of pentatonic scale. Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, so there's there's a raga there, um, but that's nowhere near the the limit of it. <laughs> It's the scale is not an even translation of raga. It's like it's also the kind of patterns that you play, um, the kind of way that you play it, um, the entire harmonic color of what you're doing is um, is determined by that. And unlike scales in Western music, of which there are a limited number of combinations uh, of raga, there are thousands, thousands of ragas, so that you would learn and choose from and create. Um, so are they almost like? Like almost like a, a toolkit yeah. that you can access to create a sort of musical journey. Yeah, it's like a framework for improvising right. the music. Um, because there's so much improvisation. I'm fascinated by that because, um, again, a very a Western-centric sort of music history thing kind of goes like, oh, everybody didn't improvise things and then jazz happened and now we improvise things. Well, like, I mean, no. <laughs> you've also got to think about like sort of like the concept of jamming as like a thing that like is also probably quite bedded down in sort of like Irish folk music of people just being in the back of a bar playing yeah. together is a similar kind of principle as yeah. what you're talking about with this Indian raga where it's like yeah. you're just kind of, you have an understanding of how sound works and how to yeah. create kind of like a vibe. Yeah. And then you just sort of do that. <laughs> it's very vibey. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. It feels very organic in that way, which I love. Yeah, so like I, I, one thing I want to say about that is that raga is the, the etymology of raga. Oh, etymology break in the mini-sode. <laughs> so it's lucky. Beautiful. Um, it's beautiful. So it's from a Sanskrit root, so it's a very old word, and it relates to um, dyes and dyeing, like as in to dye cloth, because it's it's got a sort of... Um, it's like a semiotic association with color. So it's like, it's, it's a melodic color, like dyed cloth in Indian culture as mm. well. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, for the kind of music that it is and it's, its purpose and like what so it vibe is it color. should be. It yeah. is colorful. It is color. And it's like, that's not a, an even translation into English language, Western music either, but it's, I think it's probably closer. That's really beautiful. So you've been telling me all this stuff about different sort of scales, different cultural traditions, different kind of musical color, different musical vibes. We, you and I, mm-hmm. have very different tastes in music, but we also have overlapping tastes in music. We're a beautiful little Venn diagram. <laughs> um, 
I mean, we were all beautiful Venn diagrams in some way. <laughs> it's just five seconds of summer on one side, corn on the other side, and in the middle is Gojira's flying whales. Oh, banger of a tune. <laughs> that made it onto the wedding playlist. Like, it's absolute <laughs> banger of a tune. So musical taste is a thing that people really want to sort of know about. And they there's a, I think people would love to know if there was some form of scientific basis behind it, a psychological thing that draws people to it. And... As we've been talking, I've kind of realised that there probably is at least a cultural mm. kind of basis to sort of musical taste in the sense that if you are raised and encultured in Western music, you're going to find other cultural music perhaps a little less um, sort of like cordant with your ears. Yeah. But I also think that when it comes to musical taste, there is a little bit of psycho psychology that comes into it, which is basically the concept of familiarity. So this is kind of me explaining some things to you now. So buckle up. <laughs> the tables have turned. <laughs> but what's really um, interesting when we're talking about sort of music tastes, um, and the big one is that like you've got that whole concept that sort of heavy metal music is sort of a cathartic yeah. releasing sort of music, which there are, there are some psychological studies that have demonstrated that listening to really psychologically intense or really heavy sort of rhythmic um, music is really cathartic and it allows your stress cycles to to sort of um, calm down. But we were having a conversation the other night about how we kind of, whilst listen to like a large variety of musics, you know, from a very broad range, from everything from metal to pop to jazz, we have very specific thematic tastes when it comes mm. to the kinds of music we enjoy. And so I really like sort of like intimate, personal sort of like, narrative-based music mm. and you enjoy something that's a bit more novelty and sort of intense and sort yeah. of exciting. So the, the first time I thought about music taste in this way and this very much like thematic or like almost like the what you want emotionally from music. Yeah, what are you drawn to from level, music? Yeah. Um, was when, uh, well, it's actually Jim said to me um, many, many years ago, um, probably um, we're talking like 13, 14 years ago, um, uh, he said to me, well, it's not that I like heavy music. I like powerful music. I like yes. music that has a sense of power and strength. And that makes a lot of sense. And, and I understood Jim's music taste very well at that point because then I was like, oh, no, now I understand why you would like this massive heavy breakdown and also Tori Amos's Little Earthquakes. Yeah, and why both you are wouldn't hugely like... powerful, strong, heavy material stuff. Yeah, and it's why like you like some things but not others despite like it being in the same genre as something you enjoy, but that doesn't mean that it's actually appealing to your sense yeah. that you're after from music. And so this is the thing where familiarity comes in. So essentially there's three different, that, so your aesthetic response, as they call it, to music is kind of me mediated by three different aspects. The music itself, so what, what you're actually listening to, the listening situation, so the context in which you're listening to it, and who you are as a person, your cultural upbringing your personal experience, which is why music taste is so individual. There is no way to create a generalizable sort of like rule that all people from, you know, Southeast Queensland enjoy this music. Cause it's just yeah, like, I mean, at least not in our contemporary culture. No. Because like, I mean, obviously if you imagine some in like ancient past or something and, and like music is a different thing. Music is like everyone plays the drum one person plays the air hue and that's music. <laughs> I don't know. I reckon there Does music taste exist in that way? Like, I, I reckon there would be some hipsters that would be like, uh, my music's and like, I like the old stuff, you know, those people. <laughs> I like the garbage bag on yeah. the side of the road. 
<laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so when we're talking about, uh, and so the big thing that plays into this, and this is the, the thing that this study by Adrian C. North did. Um, Use your citation voice. Adrian C. North, Individual Differences in Musical Taste, the American, American Journal of Psychology. So what- That wasn't a voice. I don't, do, I don't do voices on this podcast. Um, so basically what they discovered was that familiarity of the music or in the sense of not that you know it, but that it conforms to sort of your typical music listening. And this is what we're talking about. Typical music listening isn't in the sense of scales, isn't in the sense of sound, but is in the sense of an emotional response. Um, mm. If it conforms to your typical music experience, you're going to be much more likely to enjoy it. And also they actually did find, you know how there's the idea that like older people can't kind of listen to music that's not, that they didn't grow up with and they yeah. find it difficult to engage with new music. There might be some psychological backing to this. Yeah. Okay. And so what they found was that your adolescence is a real, and everyone can probably attest to this. Your adolescence is a really critical time period for your music taste. Mm. So if you're somebody who listens to diverse music, if you listen to a wide range of music in your adolescence, you're probably going to have a very, very eclectic taste in music in terms yeah. of the genre styles. But if you listen to nothing but the Eagles from age 15 to 25, it's very you're specific. going to be the worst sure. later on. Uh, probably. Look, <laughs> but like, it's one of those things where it's like the adol like adolescence is a formative time in many, many ways. But I think it's really fascinating because I do think that that also kind of relates to sort of the nostalgia of when you hear a song from your sort of like teenage yeah, years, you exactly. know? And for me, that's like not that long ago, but for you, it's a bit further away. <laughs> Thanks, babe. <laughs> um, yeah, so like, uh, you know, I, I'm just kind of only recently realized this about my music taste that I was like, I only, like, I seem to like stuff that is viscerally intense in some way or another <laughs> or extremely novel, which is why I'm just as gravitated towards like Deftones Around the Fur from 1997, just as much as I might be Herbie Hancock. Um, so it's just like, that makes sense because they're both kind of, you know, obnoxious. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I just kind of am gravitated towards that for whatever reason. And you said like you had a different um, relationship again, like that you wanted a sort of like emotional intimacy. That yeah, like I like a personal sort of like emotional intimacy with the with the story and the songs, which is why like my pop taste, in, and this this really comes through with my pop music that I enjoy. I really like certain pop music <laughs> and I don't really enjoy what you would assume would be an obvious sort of like adjacent. So like I really love Ariana Grande mm. because I think she's a really great storyteller. I really like Ed Sheeran. But, yeah, but both of those are really intimate. They're really intimate in different ways. In different ways. Yeah. Um, but like, I don't necessarily like all pop music, you know, it's like, I like very specific and they have to meet this criteria. And it's sort of like, I think of it as like, it's got to like itch something in my brain. You know what I mean? And that's yeah. the familiarity there that's coming through. It's like, it's got to kind of like hit this sort of like, this emotional experience yeah. for me to really kind of froth it. It's why I like the new Paramore album. It's why yeah. it's, it's honestly, it's why I really like, you know, Miley Cyrus's new song flowers. It's like, mm. it kind of just, it feels like comfortable mm. for my brain, which I think is really fascinating because it's new music. So I've never heard it before. And yet I'm immediately like, this is good. This feels safe and good and comfy. Yeah, that's kind of, that's really interesting, the kind of creation of safety, because that aligns also with the, the cultural expectation of music as well. Yes. Like the music, the traditional music maybe that you grew up with has a sense of safety to it. Like, um, and like Irish music for me and Jim, 
um, was played in family contexts. And so it is associated with that. And so that, those sounds are just sort of familiar to me and just feel comforting. Yeah. It's kind of funny that that's the same as like um, listening to something that's not nothing like that, but it meets that like emotional need. Yeah, yeah. Or, or just it just triggers the same sort of like mental sort of space. And I think that that's, that's one thing that we don't talk on enough about, I think, with music is not just about it as being like an entertaining piece of art or of it as an art form, but as a, as a sense of safety and a sense of comfort that your experience with music that you can, when you're having a bad day, you can sit and listen to the things that you know will make you feel better. And I think that's really, really lovely. Um, and it's not to say that I don't listen to music that doesn't conform to my, like you yeah. force upon me and I force <laughs> upon you different music interests. We have very different tastes in that way. And I can understand and I can relate to that music and I can enjoy that music. Yeah. But it is not my, it's not my comfort music. It doesn't sit in it doesn't, soul. It doesn't feel like a hug to me. It doesn't feel safe to me. Just as like, a, I think this is a great way to wrap this up because I was thinking like we've talked about all of this theory and all of this physics and this awesome ways in which humans have tried to make sense of the world just to make sound that's nice. That's not just speaking as well. Yeah, <laughs> at the end of the day, when we listen to the music, the first thing everybody hears is emotion mm. to the point where some people who, who are completely musically ignorant, fair enough, and they don't know even what a hi-hat is, you know, like wouldn't be able to identify the name of the instruments they're listening to, but they will, they know the emotion that they're listening to like one way or another. Yeah. And I think that says something really cool about humans and I really like it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's all from us for this mini-sode. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, your mind was blown as much as mine was when talking between just temperament and... and <laughs> e- I don't want to talk about that anymore. I, honestly, I just can't anymore. Um, but yes, yeah, so thank you so much for, for hanging around with us and listening to us and... Uh, giving us your ear, we will have some more forthcoming. Uh, We will be touching on some episodes here and there and we'll hopefully give you some more information as the season goes on. I hope you've been enjoying it so far. We've been enjoying doing it. Um, Thanks for popping by. Yeah. Um, If you want to give us a follow, we're on Instagram at the music and everything pod. And you can also join the discord. um, And all of that is linked in our Instagram and we're in there. And we chat, we ask questions, and that's definitely the place to interact with us. But yeah, until next time, take care of each other, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>